This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. We tape Discover Lafayette with the support of Raider, a managed IT service provider that offers world-class service, including cybersecurity, communications, and technology support. With Raider, you have just one vendor and one number to call, allowing you to concentrate on what is most important, your business. For more information, visit RaiderSolutions.com. We're grateful for the support of Lafayette Surgical Specialty Hospital, a physician-owned hospital where doctors have direct involvement with every aspect of care provided to their patients. Its reputation for excellence in patient comfort, safety, and overall treatment is reflected in an average patient satisfaction rating of 98% or higher. Visit LafayetteSurgical.com to find out more. Discover Lafayette is also made possible with the support of Home Bank, who wants to ensure that you protect your identity and your assets. When you make a payment with the paper check, you're handing over all of your personal or business information, plus your bank account number. While you may find an occasional reason to write a check, when possible, choose to pay with cash, debit, or credit cards, or with your phone's mobile wallet. You can stay ahead of identity thieves and protect your finances that way. Learn more at home24bank.com. Home Bank, member FDIC. We're also grateful for the support of FACET, a career coaching and talent management firm. FACET has helped the employees of hundreds of companies improve performance, find or move into their right position, or change careers. FACET can help your organization improve both the analytical and interpersonal sides of your business. Worry less, FACET more. For more information, visit facetgroup.com. Our guest is Dr. Jason Cormier, a neurosurgeon who specializes in operations affecting the brain and spine. This is our second interview. I reached out to Dr. Cormier after DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills collapsed suddenly during a Monday night football game after rising from a hit. And sadly, last night in the Tampa Bay game against Dallas, just two weeks after Hamlin's injury, Russell Gage, who we know from LSU, was injured late in the fourth quarter after a rough hit to the head rendered him unable to get up. After being transported off the field in a cart, Gage was diagnosed with a concussion and possible neck injuries. Dr. Cormier, you've worked extensively with traumatic brain injuries, and you assist the NCAA and the NFL in working to prevent brain injuries. As a spectator, I don't know how many more of these athletes are not carted off each week with the hits they take. I'm always amazed with how many rough and tumble guys we see out there, but this has to take a toll on them. Are we at a, maybe a crossroads of dealing with the dangers of playing football and other high-impact sports, or is this something that's always been going on and technology can help us? I just was curious about your thoughts. Jan, first of all, thanks for allowing me to be on your show again. It's always a pleasure uh, to be here, um, and it's a very good question. You know, First of all, the players are stronger. They're faster. Technology has allowed them to elevate uh, their game, if you will. So um, they're lifting much more in terms of weight. Um, Their legs are moving faster. So the game has accelerated. Um, And so the technology really to to protect them has to catch up. So I think, um, first of all, DeMar Hamlin had um, what we refer to as commotio cordis, which is um, more of a uh, cause from a blunt um, hit to the heart. Mm -hmm. And you typically see this between the ages of 8 and 18. And so what normally what happens is there's what what has this been described is we have electricity going through our body already 
And what happens is when this blunt force hits your chest, it's roughly about a 40 to 50 joules of energy that hits your chest at one moment. And that sends you into this heart confusion. And that's what the uh, the commotio uh, cortis actually is. And so it throws you in what's called a, an arrhythmic um, situation, which is called ventricular fibrillation. And, and that's where the, ventri- the ventricles or the bottom portion of the heart starts to beat very rapidly, but very uncoordinated. And so you have an issue, unfortunately, like, um, you know, DeMar had. And they typically see about 30 cases of this per year. And there's no real screening really? process. Oh. Uh, which most important is, you know, first of all, he survived. And that's certainly a great mm-hmm. thing. But now, what's the next step? You know, how do we work up? Why was he susceptible to something like this? Or was this just some sort of occurrence that happened? Um, the case with uh, Russell Gage, um, and that he sustained a concussion in addition to, um, you know, a neck injury, you know, those things are very common. And, and realistically, not the most common injuries in the NFL. We see joints like elbows, knees in particular, uh, the way these guys pivot. Um, like I said, they're very athletic, and the joints haven't even caught up to just how athletic these guys really are. Um, but the head injuries tend to be my my area of expertise, mm-hmm. and I've worked for a number of years with Julian Bales, people who remember from the movie Concussion. Uh, was very active in the NFL um, concussion committee or head injury uh, committee. And, and so I think what we're seeing is that uh, what people need to know or understand is that helmets are not, um, they are simply just not the end all protection of the brain. In fact, the helmets have been proven and shown that they continue to represent a false sense of security. And we've seen this with multiple studies. We've seen this with changes in the helmets, helmet designs. Mm -hmm. I've been on panels with the NFL discussing different types of helmets. And at any one time, there could be eight different types of helmets in rotation. But I can tell you that their efforts in terms of trying to address these issues, you know, they're very exhaustive. And so they're trying to figure out different ways to mitigate the injuries to these players because the players, again, they're getting faster, they're stronger. And so the, the injuries are starting to mount. I was really glad to see that Demar Hamlin was out and about. Actually, went to the training facility this week. um, I think with his mother. So he's he's coming back. I'm curious if he'll play again. But you know, it was his heart that went out. But of course, that directly affects your brain if you don't have blood pumping to keep things um, in gear, right? Sure, and that's very lucky. Oh yeah. So the so the Bills really uh, got a boost from him just showing up. Showing that he's first of all he's a he's a dedicated player, mm-hmm. um, really a super athlete, and it's interesting that really the the risk factors for this situation, this commotion cortis, is actually a thin chest wall, which is interesting because like we know he's up. a pretty stocky or built guy, so uh-huh. that and the hit didn't seem like it was all that. Um, high energy, but it was enough energy to create that situation. But certainly, you know, a, a very, very good and strong player, certainly a boost. And yeah, it was certainly a boost to, to see him yeah. up and awake. And, and who knows what happens to him next? Was this some sort of um, freak accident? Could it happen to another player on the side of him? I think further studies, and it would be better probably for the cardiologist to weigh in on this, but, you know, an electrophysiology study would demonstrate whether or not there's some underlying issues as to why he might have experienced yeah. that versus another player on his team. Right. And why did it take this long? 
Why didn't he experience this between his 8 to 18 years of age? Why did he come at now the age of 24? Mm -hmm. So that would be another question I, right. I would want to know. You mentioned um, Bales. What's his? Uh, Julian, Julian Bales. Bales. And I'm very familiar with his work. Um, I know that, was it 15 or more years ago when this really came to the forefront? I don't know how long ago you guys identified that these concussions over time can cause traumatic, the traumatic brain injury that you specialize in and can lead to ALS and other degenerative diseases. Um, yeah, so Julian's, right, Julian's actually from Louisiana. Right. And then he was an athlete in, in his mm -hmm. time as well. And so Julian, uh, he, would be, he became associated with the NFL, and he was, you know, the team doctor of the Pittsburgh Steelers at, at the time and really made a real name for himself engaging in, in traumatic brain injury. But Julian's also really a ma has a mastery level um, skill set with brain uh, tumors. So he's been around the brain for a very long time. Uh -huh. And so brain injury was really become, had become second nature to him. In terms of designing preventative mechanisms, those are kind of based on this, the actual lab laboratories that he actually built by himself and also in coordination with um, some of the guys that, that uh, built uh, Q30 Innovations, or actually he yeah. teamed up with Q30 uh, Innovations. And Julian's really been a scientist as well as a clinician, and when you have that kind of combo, it's very hard to do. You really have to have a passion for that. And so through his studies, through the inventors of the Q-Collar, Julian has been able to create a really a game changer, if you will, mm -hmm in combination with these other inventors, something very special in the Q collar that's been shown to decrease axonal injuries, um, which is at the base of concussion brain injury, by over 90%. So it's really something yeah. special we have to add to the piece of the puzzle of while you're wearing helmets, you're practicing good uh, tackle measure um, techniques. The Q collar is another great piece of the puzzle, which we think, and has been proven, to decrease concussions mm -hmm. and brain injury by a significant amount. Uh, that was one of the favorite parts of our, our first interview when you talked about how a battering ram, you know, their their activity among each other, and then woodpeckers um, studying them that they just continually beat their heads up, but they never they never suffer any damage, and they do it over and over and over, just kind of like these football players. <laughs> you know, the the football players, I think. Um, you know, when you when you think about some of the statements that have been made in the past, you know, maybe football wasn't made for human beings. I think people said that. People people said that. They said that. I think it was probably Dr. Marlowe who, actually, um, at least in the movie, that's that's what was depicted. And I think that, you know, we as humans were smart enough to continue and further those types of gladiator sports, and we just need to be smart enough to figure out ways to allow. Uh, those kids to play those sports because mm -hmm. they're fantastic. They actually are many in many ways keep you healthier. They build um, really a collective brotherhood, if you will, and that's across the whether it's yeah. male or females. And so there are many good aspects about sports, whether it's you know little league, high school, uh, college, or the professional ranks. There are really good things about it. So I would not go. I would not agree with it. Wasn't. Football was not made for human beings. I would say that we need to come to uh, consensus as to how we can allow the players to continue to play it in a safer, safer mm -hmm. way because they're faster. Now, I would say looking back, you know, 
football finds its, its roots in rugby back in the 1800s. And then as you follow the timeline, Dr. Cantu and finally NFL develops this, this concussion committee. And then ultimately um, Webster unfortunately dies. And then Bennett, Amalo and Julian Bales get together. And the settlement, I think, was in uh, 2014. And, you know, there was uh, there were a lot of good things that happened with that. But still, what it didn't do is address all the issues that are still out there. Mm-hmm. And the players globally, and there are many here in, in Lafayette, Louisiana, that I take care of, that are still feeling some of the issues of just repeated head injuries that have led to things like CTE and just um, motion mo- motor disorder. So it, it, we have a long way to go, but I think we have some really good tools, at least we're in the right direction. Can you describe what you've seen, um, the after effects of, of some of the athletes that you've seen that are local without naming anyone? Wh- what does happen? Sure. So in terms of the brain, if we were just to talk about the brain, it, I would say that the most common thing is uh, headaches, primarily. Okay. And after headaches, there's some cognitive dysfunction. There's some aggressive nature mm-hmm. uh, associated with that. And just um, off balance and then progressive dementia. And so I've seen all really all four stages of the quote unquote CTE or the chronic traumatic encephalopathy that you read about. And those guys go through that. And it typically occurs anywhere from 10 to 20 years after your final hit. And some people will have some of those features during their play, but it's typical that years later they start to experience those things mm-hmm. and it becomes chronic and it's very debil- it's very debilitating, not only for the players, but also for their families who have to deal with it. Right. If you just play, let's say, junior high or middle school and high school football and you have a few concussions, I'm sure this is pretty common, but you don't, most people don't get scholarships. You know, the majority of athletes are not going to play college or in the pros. Um, do they have the same risk? If, does it just depend on the extent of the injury while they were, you know, in um, high school? Sure. So I, I, I think the, the best way to answer that is when you look at high school athletics, or you look at concussions in general, sports-related concussions, the numbers or anywhere from 1.6 million to 3.8 million per year. And those numbers might actually be elevated in real time. In other words, the 3.8 might be larger because some people don't go to the doctor, mm-hmm. they, don't go, they don't go to the hospital. So that level might be a little bit more than 3.8 million. When you get down to the high school level, now of those 1.6 to 3.8 million, 300,000 of those are head injuries from football. From football. So, on average, about 62,000 head injuries will occur, concussions will occur in high school. So, there's like a 19% chance, likelihood, that you participate in any high contact sports in high school that you will sustain a concussion or head injury. So, the, the goal is that I think, or the message is that you need to make sure that these kids are protected mm-hmm. because they are all at risk for brain injuries and concussions. From the standpoint of spinal injuries, again, this the same. We can't disregard, you know, considering that the concussion occurs at a breach of 50 Gs, you know, muscle strains or neck injury or, or a, a sprain in your neck will occur at 15 Gs. So almost by definition, if you had a concussion, 
your neck in some form or fashion has been injured. Right. I would say that locally, and I work with obviously a number of organizations throughout the country and still do, locally at UL, um, University at Lafayette, you look at the doctors there, Amanda Phillips, just super. They their protocols have worked. Mm-hmm. They have a they have a, a, a protocol um, uh, for concussions where the athletes are uh, will slowly get back to to, to uh, training and, and and back to play in in the appropriate time. They're given uh, the appropriate supplements, and and so I think what we're doing here locally is is really good and exciting. Globally, I'm a little more disappointed in that a lot of Institutions haven't adopted the protocols that are out there, different courses that these trauma doctors can go to and attend. You know, I hope I didn't put you on the spot. You, you knew all the statistics. I wonder if parents are given information, I don't know, when their children start playing, you know, not just football, but other high-impact sports. I wonder if they know, like, there's a 19% chance that my child could really be seriously injured. You know, I can say that when I played football, I didn't know anything about that. And you, you probably know, didn't care, huh? I, I mean, no, most, it's so cool to play. It's you, just you cool. Don't, you don't know about it, and, yeah. and you think that you're superhuman. Excuse me. And, and from the standpoint of if someone might have said, look, you know, you could have a really bad head injury. Well, would I care? Probably not. You could have a bad injury getting into a car. Would you would you care? Probably not. Yeah. But at least knowing that there are some precautionary measures that could be taken. And the few high schools that I've spoken to, St. Thomas Morge, one of them, and my alma mater, they embraced it immediately. Um, Coach Hightower, which is why he's really, I think, a, a general in his own right, looked at the cue collar and instantly said, yes, this is something that, that I like and I mm-hmm. want to protect my, my kids. And I think every coach around the area would, would say that, but you, you have to be informed. Right. And I think that's the key. Information is, is golden and it will take you miles and miles down the road. Mm-hmm. In my show notes, I'll repost about the cue collar, but it's something that goes around the neck below the, um, the helmet. And from, if I remember right, it puts about one and a half, is it, it, it increases pressure Correct. The, the blood pressure around the brain, so it protects it from having that slosh upon That's impact. That's correct. Yeah. And the slosh is the main issue. So slosh, by definition, is um, the movement of a solid or semi-solid inside of a container. And so we're talking about the brain inside of the skull. And so what the collar does is, you're, as you said, it applies 1.5 pounds of pressure over the sternocleidomastoids. That's the big muscles on the side of your neck. And just below that is your internal jugular vein. Um, Julian and company were studying this back in 2012. And so we know, even before then, that jugular compression Mm -hmm. demonstrated effects that could apparently mitigate the effects of high contact uh, injuries to the brain because you're preventing that slosh effect or the slosh of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so when you provide that 1.5 pounds of pressure to the sternocleidomastoids, you get this mild obstruction of the jugular vein. And so you, that the result of that is that you have an added six to eight, eight mils of blood in your brain that fills the sinuses. And so it creates this tighter structure inside the head. So you're essentially creating an airbag to the skull for your Mm -hmm. brain. It's not uncomfortable though to the player. It, it doesn't feel uncomfortable. Well, it's it's made to fit just below your hyoid bones. It's a little bit lower, uh-huh. uh, and it feels like when you first put it on, it feels like you're you're wearing a coat tie. 
Yeah. And after about two or three minutes, so you know something's happening. And after about two or three minutes, you kind of forget you have it on. Mm-hmm. And you can wear it up to, you know, it's been proven that you can wear it up to four hours. You can take it off, put it on in between a different series or whatnot. And it's a, it's a very simple device that carries years and years and years of technology and research. And so while it looks like a, and I used to say this, it's you know, simple looking. it's, it's like a, it's like a coat hanger, if you will. Yeah. How could a coat hanger be so sim- simple, but help you organize, you know, your, mm-hmm. your, your next, uh, you know, ensemble that you're going to wear. But the collar, there's now 10 years of data on this, on this mm-hmm. device and no negative, um, impact. So the, so the FDA, when you submit something to the FDA, the first thing that the FDA wants to know is whether or not something's going to hurt someone. And they, that was the first letter that the company received that there was no detrimental effects from wearing a collar. And they looked at increases in intraocular pressure. They looked at increases in intracranial pressure. They looked at all different things. And what's important to know is that this does, that this does not, this device does not, um, could, it does not um, touch the carotid artery. It's mainly mildly obstructing the jugular vein and not completely obstructing, it's mildly obstructing. Mm-hmm. I think that's been a misconception um, for, for, for a few years or so. And, and with that, the, the, the intraocular pressure increases one to two points, which if you look at yoga, Yoga in certain positions and yoga has been around for yeah. Yeah, your 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 intraocular pressure they've demonstrated that it increases almost twelve to fifteen points, and Mm -hmm. that's been you know yoga is a very healthy uh, Mm -hmm. thing, exercise engagement. You look at simple things like goggles, like swimming goggles. Your intraocular pressure increases ten to fifteen points, Mm -hmm. and people really don't know that, but those studies are out. So when this company decided, and more so, Julian was on these studies, they decided to look at all different devices that could possibly increase intraocular pressure and compare it to the collar. It's amazing that a lot of things that we do daily mm-hmm. increase those things. And an ophthalmologist will tell you that the diurnal rhythm or the rhythm cro- across the, from, from, you know, sun up to sundown, you will have rises, your, your intraocular pressure will rise and fall up and down throughout the day. So the collar, what we had to prove, what they had to prove to the FDA was really minuscule in terms of what we mm-hmm. deal with on a normal basis in terms of that. And the intracranial pressure with only one to two points, that doesn't even touch uh, or create any sort of injury to the brain or into your cognition. So all that stuff's been proven. And it was all third party acquired data. So yeah. the company didn't acquire this data and then mm-hmm. put it out there. It they had third, yeah, it was yeah. third party acquisitions. And so. it's highly effective in preventing. Um, Concussions. Well, I can tell you that there were some players locally that that had the opportunity to wear it, and they received their coaches' blessings to do so. And these were guys that were made nameless, but had headaches after practice every single day. They played their senior years without any headaches, and this is this is um, this was local. There are now over eighty football players in the NFL wearing this. And so at any given Sunday, you will see 30 to 40 of these players. In fact, the Dallas Cowboys last night, several of them have the collar. And, you know, at the collegiate level, there are, there are different uh, colleges, um, Alabama, Georgia, different organizations that are that are embraced the collar. They're testing it and some are wearing it. And mm-hmm. again, these kids are finding that the results are amazing. Yeah, The company... 
from the professional, uh, from the NFL, some of these football players will text the owners and text the, some of the representatives from the company, and they will say things amazing. I've, I've seen these text messages, and they're, I can't believe I played football last night. It doesn't feel like I played football. Like, like what, like what's going on? Yeah. I feel pretty good. (laughs) It's really amazing. And, and now we're moving into hopefully NASCAR is going to fully embrace this. There are a number of drivers that want to see this and some of them really want to wear this because they know it works. Mm -hmm. And, there's been talk as to whether or not this could be a placebo effect, but you, you can't have a placebo effect with a headache. With you either a have a headache yeah. or you don't. Right. So right. we know it's working. So I know about the targeting. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the rules like I'm sure you are, but are there other things that you think could be done to, to change the game, to protect the head in particular? Or is the targeting pretty much what, you know, is going to be the trick, like just to keep people from slamming into their heads? <laughs> Well, you know, I think that there's this go out and kill sort of nature that you have to have when you walk out of the locker room and you want to win the game. I do think that they're, as football players, they're still human beings. And they also understand that blows that they would ordinarily deliver, you can actually see some of those players kind of holding back or hitting players in different areas. And, and I've, I've seen that. And it's, it's really noble to, for people to know that, Hey, I could hurt this person pretty bad, but I take, you know, the other, the other mm-hmm. side, maybe I'll hit him a little bit lower. So, so I, what I, I think the targeting is one aspect of it too. I think just the internal empathy that a player has that I could possibly hurt you, but no, I'm right. not going to. I think that's a, that's a part of it. The tackle box was also created by the NFL and, you know, the NFL concussion uh, protocol, trying to get them out of the game mm-hmm. and not just putting them right back in like they did in the past will also help mitigate that as well. One concussion, two, three, four, all those things lead down the road and it eventually creates a situation where some of that damage could be potentially irreversible. And it's still voluntary for someone to leave the league if they have had multiple concussions and they're not forced out? No, well... That's a good question, and, and that's that's probably one that we're going to see evolve even more. If you mm-hmm. ask certain NFL players, or some of them, and they'll remain nameless, they will say, yes, I was probably forced out, or it was, I was tagged with as a liability. I had one or two or three concussions, and I was told that I'm going to be concussion-prone. And that's a label that will affect their livelihoods. It'll affect their contracts. And really, when you get to the bottom of it, how do you prove that someone is truly concussion prone? And we know people who are concussion prone who actually wore the collar and only had one concussion in the next two or three years. Mm -hmm. So what does that say about, well, we actually have a device that can help you, but also what does it truly mean to say that someone is prone to concussions? And I don't think anyone has that, that, that answer, but voluntarily yeah, people do leave. I think Luke Higley voluntarily left. He could have continued to play. And some mm-hmm. people just decide, I've done, I've done enough. I have nothing more to prove, and my family's most important. Yeah. When you look at someone like Tom Brady or Drew Brees, it seems like a miracle that they could play that long and not be debilitated, you know? You know, those are those guys. And look, there are, there are several goats out there, and, and certainly Tom Brady and, and uh, Drew Brees, 
you know, they're they're right up there, obviously. Aaron Rodgers, yeah. I mean, there's yeah, a bunch of them. Yeah, there's a bunch but... of them. I mean, you can't ar- argue with all the championships of Tom Brady. I would say he's still at the at the top mm-hmm. of the list for that. Yeah. At least my my book. And how they avoided that, you know, I think when you look at some motorcycle riders, and there used to be this saying in motorcycles, you've either fallen or you're falling down. One of the two. <laughs> and having operated on so many motorcycle driver riders, I would kind of shake my head. But at the same time, why is it that so many guys and the the younger the uh, Evil Knievel's son just recently passed yeah, away. Robbie, yeah. Robbie. And he wasn't paralyzed. He no. sustained some things and died unfortunately of pancreatic cancer. But you wonder how was he still walking? Why wasn't mm-hmm. he paralyzed? And so I think that people like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees, they also know how to they're smart enough to know how to fall. They're smart enough to know how to avoid the hits. When to fall. Correct. Like maybe fall a little early. Exactly. And so if you know the dangers out there, and you understand the dangers. And, and again, those are guys that are at different levels for obvious reasons. If you know how to fall, you're going to elongate your your sustainability in a game that dangerous. Yeah. I worry about Joe Burrow. I just love him. And it seems like he's always like, I'm in it full speed. And you're like, no, go down, man. You know? Joe, <laughs> you Joe don't Burrow, have to run. <laughs> I, I had the opportunity to, you know, to, to, to meet him a few times and, oh. and, and watched him play. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I think my favorite game uh, that he, he played when he was at LSU was uh, in Alabama when um, the Tigers beat Alabama mm-hmm. on their own home field. And it was a scary situation because I was in the alumni uh, as a former basketball player, and we had this athletic uh, um, uh, section, and the game got really tight. And you could see we were close enough; we could see Joe Burrow's eyes, and he was just solid. He was like, "Okay, you guys scored. I have something else for you." And so to see that kind of bravery mm-hmm. and just fortitude to just never say die, I'm going to get through this game, is something special. And so you're right; he has a courage that could potentially in some ways be debilitating because he's not he's going to take a hit and he's going to give someone a hit and that as you kind of alluded to can actually shorten your career in a gladiator sport such as the nfl yeah we were watching that game where demar hamlin got hurt because of our love for joe burrow i mean we just he reignited all of us even my two girls interest in lsu football and then watching his career but we all sat there for that hour. You know, they just, I think ESPN didn't know what to do. And so the commentators were just yakking while people were trying to figure out, did this guy die, you know? And it was interesting, doctor. My two girls were like, they're 24 and 30. They just looked at us like, why do people allow this? I mean, they were just, they don't really watch a lot of football. And we said, you know, this is such a fluke. It's, I don't think it's ever happened like this, where somebody was hit like that. I mean, there was one guy 50 years ago that passed away from a heart, you know, unknown condition. But I guess that's where I'd like to look at closing. I think this has brought home to a lot of us that we should be grateful for this entertainment and also realize that this, it's a very dangerous sport, you know. I I would agree with you. You know, we we talked about, um, you know, when, when, when Hamlin was hit and and one thing I didn't address is, you know, he lost oxygenation to his brain. Yeah. And so the long term effects of that, we're going to see what what happens. You know, his heart is now beating. Uh, but with the loss of oxygenation for such a long period of time, how is that going to impact his ability to do anything or things that he was able to do prior moving forward? 
Hopefully he's fine and everything's okay. And you're right, it is a dangerous sport. It is a gladiator sport. And But you look at where sports and entertainment has really taken us. You know, gladiators had this in Roman times, yeah. long time people ago. People have always liked this. Correct. Yeah. And that was at the entertainment of the people and the royalty. And now we see football that is just fantastic. We see things that people could only wish that they could do some, mm-hmm. sometimes. But you see it in basketball. There are a number of concussions in basketball. There are elbows you just don't see on TV. I can tell you that having been just in practice alone when I played for LSU, we had concussions every day really? you know, in practice, and you don't have pads on. And so there are a number of concussions that occur in basketball. Women's soccer, you know, when you look at football, versus something like female soccer. That's mm-hmm. actually much more dangerous than playing in the NFL. The most dangerous sport in the world is actually the equestrian population, yeah. right? So yeah. falling off a horse and then the horse stampeding you if you're on a track racing, you know, with these thoroughbreds, that's actually more dangerous at 20 deaths per million, whereas women's soccer soccer is actually set at 15 deaths per million. In the NFL, it's less than six deaths per million, but it's still a real number. And these people are living but they're living with these disabilities. And at times the league, while they're trying to do a better job now, they get written off and, and, you know, these families lose their livelihoods. And I had Randy Grimes, uh, who's such a great, great guy who played for Tampa Bay for 10 years and really built that program. He was indoctrinated into a environment where you were given drugs mm-hmm. after each game. And, these guys get hooked on these drugs. And so after the aftermath of that is 10 years after he was playing, he, the, the, the new, the new um, coach coming in tapped him on his back and said, okay, Grimes, we won't need your services next year. And that's how he found out he wasn't coming back. Wow. And so then he lost everything. Yeah. The only thing he could turn to was drugs because when he got off the drugs, he had seizures. And so he eventually went into a, um, you know, a, you know, facility and, f- and this is after time and time again. He talks about this on, on my podcast. And, and he says, finally, he did it, and it was his wife that stood by him. And so if you don't have good people standing by yeah. you, you're, you're almost completely lost. So I do think that you know, the dangers of it are there. Every sport has its own dangers, swimming, diving, yeah. you name it, bobsledding, race car driving, motorcycle riding, horseback riding. The, the world has come to a point to where it's almost like we're addicted. We need more yeah. and we've become tolerant. And I'm not a crazy WWF watcher, but it's no longer mm-hmm. can you just grab someone and slam them to the ground. You have to get on the top rope and do a three, do a flip in the air and then land on their head. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's society has mandated yeah. that we want more and, mm-hmm. you know, a, a jump off on concrete, whatever it is. The sports have just elevated and the entertainment's continuing to drive yeah. that. Maybe it's a good thing to get a higher education, huh? So you have a choice <laughs> after Education a few years. will always be the cornerstone <laughs> of success, I will say. And, and, and I grew up around some, some, good, some good guys from St. Thomas More. And, and of course, our yeah. mothers beat that into our heads. So, so we definitely have a credit to mm-hmm. our, you know, our mothers and, and uh, parents for that. Was there any point you'd like to make that I didn't ask? Anything that... You want to bring up or no? I th- well, I think again, just to really set home that sports are fun and they are healthy. I think they're necessary, 
and just recognizing the dangers of them. You can have longevity. I think that there are tools provided as long as people pay attention and understand the data and the dangers you can compete at a higher level, as high as you want to go with good dedication, but also listen to the rules and watch what's happening to other people. And there are things out there to help mitigate those long-term effects. Don't ever think you're superhuman or you can't get hurt. Because of that, have a backup plan, Mm -hmm. and that would be your education that will take you beyond sports. Yeah, well said. Dr. Jason Cormier with Acadiana Neurosurgery, I want to thank you for taking time with us again. Um, I just find this fascinating, and you're um, top in your field, so we appreciate your input today. I'd like to thank our listeners for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, please go um, anywhere you get your podcast, or you can go to discoverlafayette.net and see over 295 other interviews along with Dr. Cormier. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, Facet, a career coaching and talent management firm, and of course, Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape and makes it sound much more professional than I could. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, thank you for listening. This is Jan Swift. Thank you.